Hey, folks, it's Julie with just a quick note before we get started. We are working on an episode of the podcast about the political system in America. And we want to hear from you. Do you feel like your views don't fully align with the Republicans or the Democrats? How do you stay engaged in the process if neither party really feels like home? Have you ever voted for a third party? I want to hear your story. We might even use it on the podcast. We can keep you anonymous if you'd prefer. Send an email to topofmind at byu.edu. Huh, I didn't realize That's that. an interesting question. You know, I've never heard of it from that So let's talk about that. Let's talk you know, about I think it. you need to come over, stand in my shoes. Agree to this is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Welcome. We'll be back next week with an all-new episode of the podcast. In the meantime, here is one more bonus conversation from our live radio days. And this one really gets at the heart of what we're trying to do here at Top of Mind. So you know that ink blot image where it's either a drawing of a delicate young woman with a long, elegant neck, or it's a wizened old lady with a giant crooked nose? Which one is it? Well, it's both, right? I think about that a lot when I encounter a perspective I don't agree with. My first inclination is often to get defensive and want to convince the other person how wrong they are. But if I set that aside and just listen for a moment, just try to understand why they believe something that seems so wrong to me, the first thing that happens is that I realize they have many of the same hopes and fears as I do. Basically, they're human, like me. It's just that our life experiences have coalesced differently. So they see a young woman when they look at the image, and I see the old lady. What happens next is the magic of what we're trying to do here on Top of Mind. Once I realize this other person I disagree with has a view that's just as valid to them as mine is to me, that's humbling. But it's also motivating. Now I start thinking more deeply about why I believe what I believe. Maybe I'll change my view a little. Maybe I won't. The point is that I'm thinking more deeply. I'm thinking again about this position I had always just assumed was obvious and right. And I really believe that process has the power to make me a better citizen, a more effective advocate, a more compassionate friend and neighbor. Okay, so you're thinking, that's great, Julie. (laughs) What does it have to do with this week's episode? Well, like all the conversations we've brought you this summer from the Top of Mind archive, this one is meaningful to me personally because... It drives home more than any other interview I've ever done how it can be possible for two people to look at the same thing and perceive it completely differently. In this case, we're talking about synesthesia, which is where two or more of a person's senses mix together. Four percent of people have synesthesia. So for them, sounds might also have tastes. Numbers and letters correspond to certain colors or musical notes. A few years back, I spoke with a leading researcher on synesthesia. He's a professor of neurology at George Washington University named Richard Saitoic. Let's listen. Dr. Saitoic, what a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks for your time. Oh, my pleasure. Nice to be here. Synesthesia, is it a disorder, a genetic mutation? What do we call it? Well, uh, it's, it's, no, it's, it's a trait, like having perfect pitch. It's a perceptual trait. 
Um, and it is, um, it is a genetic mutation. 4% of the population have the genes that cause this um, overt coupling of the senses. Um, it runs strongly in families. So if you're the only one in your family, then you are what we call a spontaneous mutation. You have been sort of blessed by the synesthesia fairy of, <laughs> of having this delightful trait. Blessed. Is it something that people who have it uh, are glad for? Oh, they love it, yes. I mean, to lose it would be uh, just an odious state, like going blind or deaf. They look at us and say, well, how can you enjoy music if you can't see it? Huh. Or how do, we, how do we remember things if you, don't, if you can't see all the, the colors and shapes and movements and tastes and things like that? Describe, describe what, uh, what synesthesia, what, what the perception is like for someone. There are so many different versions of it, I guess we should explain. Um, what, what's a more common one? And describe what that would mean for that person. Yeah, the most common kind of synesthesia is the perceiving the day, days of the week as colored followed by grapheme synesthesia. And graphemes are the written elements of words, the letters and numerals and punctuation marks. They take on uh, certain shades of colors or different representations of them. So when they're actually, and, so someone who has that form you just described there, they're reading a book and each of the letters is... Technicolor on the page. So even though it's printed in black ink, the letters and, and numerals are, are colored for them. Hmm. How... If you ask them where, where, where do they see the colors, um, they, a lot of them say, well, it's on the page. It's out there. It's outside the body. For other people, it's just like, oh, I really can't say where it is, but it's, it's just this overall sense of color that I get. And once this is established in childhood, then the, the coupling stay uh, consistent throughout their lifetime. Oh, okay. So uh, an S may always be red and an R may always be green. Right. Uh, it, it's not that they'll sort of just randomly change. And the same would be true, you mentioned music, for example. So some people have, when they hear music, they see the notes have colors, they see swirling images. Well, they see the sound. It's the sound. So, and, and that kind of, it's a, any kinds of sound. So voices, uh, tra- traffic, clattering of dishes, do- dogs barking, musical sounds. Musical sounds tend to produce it more than any other kinds of sound, musical sounds and voices. Hmm. And uh, what they see is the colored moving shapes um, ab- at about an arm's, re- arms, di- arm's length distance in front of them, as if it's on sort of a screen. And uh, as long as the, the music or, or the sound stimulus keeps going, then they'll keep seeing these things. So it's sort of like, imagine fireworks for the rest of us. All of a sudden, this, this color and shape and movement appears, it scintillates a, little, a bit, it fades, and then it goes away unless the next rocket goes up. So that's what it's like. Now, synesthesia, the technical definition then is just when you have the melding of two, of two senses. I mean, what... The coupling of two or more, more uh, senses or, or cognitive ca- categories, because obviously an alphabet is not a sense. Sure. But so what's the difference then between me thinking of a gooey chocolate brownie right now and sort of salivating a little bit because I can kind of taste it on my tongue as I think about it? Well, that's, a, that's an act of imagination. What's the difference between you and the synesthete is that cross talk, cross-connections are the rule in all brains. It's just that synesthetes have more of it, and they are consciously aware that they do. So that is to say that we're all synesthetes behind the scenes. 
except we're, we, we aren't aware of, we don't have a privileged look behind the curtain hmm. the way that synesthetes do. But, but the pairings then for a synesthete, someone who has synesthesia, would be would be a, a lot less obvious then? So, for example, chocolate to me, I think of melty and brown and sweet and creamy, whereas a synesthete right. might well, might have a different experience. Sean, uh, Sean, who has colored taste, um, so he loves blue foods in particular. And blue foods, that his favorite blue foods are oranges, milk, and spinach, none of which are blue. Yeah. So it doesn't, you know, so on an intellect, on a rational level, no, it doesn't make any sense. But on a sensory level, to them, it does make sense. Yeah. How did oranges become blue for Sean? The, I mean, the interesting thing about synesthesia is that you've got to inherit a genetic propensity to have more than the usual amount of, of cross-connections in your brain. But then you must also be exposed to childhood artifacts, such as letters, numerals, the names of the foods that you eat, the ability to tell time, musical notes, um, naming your colors, etc. And these all happen, you know, around between ages two and five. Hmm. And that's when this joining takes place. And this is a time when, of course, the human brain is undergoing a tremendous amount of growth and reorganization. Newborns are, uh, are, have many, many more synapses than they'll have when they're one year old or five years old. And so it's a use it or lose it kind of thing. If connections aren't established, then these, these nerve cells and the synapses just waste away. They atrophy away. So there's something during the developmental process where the synesthetes are retaining these additional connections. You mentioned that it often runs in families. So, for example, if Sean, you mentioned if his if his sister or his mother was also a synesthete, would 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 they also see oranges and chicken and no, vanilla they, ice cream as blue? They won't have they won't have the same kind of synesthesia necessarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, even identical twins don't necessarily have the same kind. But it does run in families, and either either sex parent but can pass it on to either sex child. You mentioned Wednesday's Indigo Blue. In that book, um, Dmitry Nabokov wrote the foreword to that, and talking about his synesthesia, then his famous father, the novelist Vladimir Nabokov, and then his grandmother, who also... They all, so there were three generations who had synesthesia. Synesthesia is more common in, in people who are creative, and of course there, we, there are famous synesthetes, and, such as um, Nabokov, the painter David Hockney, Lady Gaga, Billy Joel, hmm. um, classical music composers, painters, Kandinsky, for example. And uh, what these people all have in common is a, a, a great talent for making metaphors. And so if you ask what good synesthesia is, well, the individual synesthete says, well, it gives you good memory. And in fact, when you measure their memories, they're off the chart. But for the rest of us, as a, because 4% of the population has, have these genes, and so what are they doing? And I think that they, they're the metaphor gene. They make us more creative as a species. Because after all, what is metaphor? It's seeing the similar in the dissimilar. So the synesthete says, well, I know it's two because it's white. That doesn't make any sense to us, but to us, yellow is an orange or warm color, the blue is a cold color, for example. So it's this, this ability to make these kinds of connection makes us more creative as a species. 
Dr. Saitoic, you are a neurologist. How 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 have you become convinced as a scientist who studies the brain that that these people are actually experiencing what they say they're experiencing? Yeah, that they're having a real perception. Oh, that's easy, and you don't need million-dollar machines to do it. You can show this with paper and pencil kinds of tests. Well, first of all, as a clinician, uh, the, the synesthetes all tell the same story. I've always had this. I've never not had it. I've had it as far back as I can remember. It's always been the same when I say something, people look at me like I'm crazy, so they don't talk about it, and they assume they're the only one in the world, blah, blah. And yet the wannabes, the really people who are nuts, they tell the very weird stories, and so you're, you, you can tell them apart fairly easily on a clinical basis. And then you, do, you use things like visual illusions and, and um, different kinds of very uh, standard perceptual tests that have been around for you know, almost a century and a half now, and you can show that they're having um, a real perception. For example, if I show you a matrix made of fives and, and within that is a hidden figure that I've outlined with twos, it would take you a while to search and find the hidden figure. But synesthetes who see twos as differently colored than fives immediately say, oh, it's a triangle, it's a square, it's a circle, because it, it pops right out at them. Mm. Um, so the perceptual tests like that. And, uh, Do you, have you hooked any synesthetes up to a, a brain scanner? I did the first kind of uh, brain scanning back in 1979. Um, so, yes, and then the, the more modern ones with the uh, functional MRIs and all that. And they show what, what you expect when the synesthete says, uh, I see color when I look at these letters or when I hear these words pronounced. Um, indeed, they're the color region of the brain activates. Um, huh. So, you know, and that, that was the, you know, for, for, for the first 15 years, I had to fight enormous hostility from people who said, oh, this can't possibly be a real brain thing. It's too new age, too new weird, too weird. <laughs> I mean, my colleagues told me this was going to ruin my career because I should steer clear of this. And I thought, wow, why are they so hostile to this? And um, it's because it, 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 counteract it, it it went against the the orthodoxy and i said well you know instead of this being bogus maybe our theories need to change maybe our theories are inadequate to explain synesthesia and that turned out to be the case the so, theory the so, theory being that our five senses our, were of distinct how our, of how our brains are of how our brains are organized and how how perception and sensation work so yeah so over the course of 40 years i caused a paradigm shift in how we think about the brain. Dr. Saitoic, was there an, an encounter with a synesthete that turned you on to this? You yourself do not have synesthesia, as I understand it. No, I it. don't. I, I only knew the word because I, I read a book in the sub-basement of the library while I was trying to get away from the page operator uh, and, uh, about a, a mnemonicist, a memory expert, and he had a five-fold synesthesia meaning all five senses were coupled, and so he had all these extra hooks to hang things on, and that's why his memory was, like, limitless. And I thought, ooh, what a great word, anesthesia, no sensation, synesthesia, coupled sensation. Hmm. And I filed that away. And then a new neighbor who taught at the School of the Arts where I was living at the time invited me to dinner to meet some friends, and he said, oh, just, it'll be just a few minutes, there aren't enough points on the chicken. And his friends laughed and said, oh, Michael, what are you smoking this time? And Michael was the man who tasted shapes. 
And he turned to me, hoping I'd understand as a neurologist, and I said, oh, oh, you have synesthesia. I was just trying to be polite. And he said, you mean there's a name for what I do? And I thought, how could he not know? What are some of the more unusual perception couplings that you've encountered in synesthetes? Well, I think that uh, tastes that have uh, words that have taste. There's a there's a well-known English uh, guy um, who um, owned a pub, and he finally had to close because uh, the, the, all the voices around him caused these these flavors in his mouth. So, uh, jail tasted like hard, cold bacon. Derek tasted like earwax. So some of them were pleasant, some of them were quite unpleasant. So that's a sort of an unusual one. Yeah, well, I mean, that does underscore, just imagine if every word that you hear someone say causes uh, an explosion of different flavors that maybe don't get along in your mouth. Like, that could be actually quite disruptive in your life. It can be unpleasant. Some of the, yeah, some of the, the, the sensations are like fingernails on a blackboard kind of thing. Overall, they're very pleasant, but there are some very unpleasant ones as well. They don't like it if they see people wearing, quote, the wrong color, or they, if they see an advertisement um, or a billboard and the letters are in the wrong color, they can't look at it. They have to look away. Hmm. So th- there are these curious things, but it does affect how people feel and think about things. Um, a Swiss woman uh, her niece was going to name the baby Paul, and, and the woman said, oh, no, don't name it Paul. That's a gray, ugly color, that name Paul. And then she caught herself, and she thought, she must think I'm out of my mind. To her, it doesn't matter, but to me, it affects how I feel about that. So, hmm. you, know. you mentioned that the most common form of synesthesia is people associating colors with the days of the week. Why, of all of the possible couplings, would that be so common? What do you think is going on there? It's an overlearned sequence, and it it turns out that the brain is particularly interested in things that we learn by rote to death. So the the alphabet and the days of the week, what what are the first things that a kid learns? Mm. Um, You know, colors, numbers, A, B, C. In Mm. fact, there's a thing called number forms. So that anything that's a sequence has a physical location that sort of wraps around your body. So like November is brown and it's down by my right knee, for example. Um, it's, so people, they're able to visualize these spatial calendars and, and dates and number forms and anything that's a sequence. Now that you've managed, Dr. Saitoic, to get uh, the scientific community to take synesthesia seriously, they don't think you're crazy anymore (laughs) to be so interested in it, what what can we learn about it next? How is it going to help the rest of us who don't have synesthesia? Well, it continues to inform us about how the brain is organized, how it develops, how things get fixed. It tells us about plasticity, the, the ability of the brain to change and adapt as we change the environment or as we go into new environments. So there's still plenty to learn about this. I mean, after the first 10 years, it seemed like we had everything nailed down. And then, um, you know, the more more questions you answer, the more questions arise. And that's where we are now, where all the exceptions and the nuances. So we have a long ways to go, and it's going to uh, tell us a lot more. Richard Saitoic is a clinical professor of neurology at George Washington University and a leading researcher on synesthesia. His books include Wednesday is Indigo Blue and The Man Who Tasted Shapes. Next week on an all-new episode of the Top of Mind podcast, what do you do when you discover the branch of your family tree that you have always been proud of 
includes a dark secret. It went to search by captain name and up popped three transatlantic slave trading voyages that he had captained. So it was sort of this horrifying realization and I didn't quite know what to do with it. Is it always better to know where you come from? That is next week's brand new episode of the Top of Mind podcast. There's a lot to think about. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon.